Hey, and welcome to our last week of our Who Am I Discipleship module. And this week we are going to look at three areas where we're tempted to make uh, some other identity greater than the identity that we find in Christ. So in the next two videos, Wes will be walking us through political and ethnic identities. And in this video, I'm going to look at religious identities. Specifically, we're going to look at two ways in which religious people can find an identity in something besides Christ. And those two ways are, first, their righteousness, and second, in their sin. So we're going to use Philippians 3, 2 to 11 as a primary passage that we'll walk through. And let me start with the first couple verses. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. One of the early controversies in the church was essentially how Jewish do you need to be to be a Christian? And while over and over again in the book of Acts and elsewhere, God shows that to be a full Christian, you do not need to take on the Jewish uh, customs. The idea that taking them on uh, persisted, and this was a, a early source of conflict in the early church. So there were people in the early church that would go around to these various churches and say, well, sure, you can have Christ uh, by faith alone, but if you want to be a top-notch Christian, if you really want God to love you, if you want to experience the fullness of the Spirit, you need to do these other things, which include being circumcised, taking on the Jewish cultural customs. That will make you a super-Christian. That will put you above everybody else. Instead of Jesus being the capstone of the Christian life, Jesus had been turned into a stepping stone to something better. Well, Paul continues in Philippians 3 verse 4, Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul had built a religious identity on who his what his history was, and all that he had done. He was a straight-A student. He was without fault. He tried harder than everybody else. He was more disciplined than others. And if you looked at him, you would think, certainly God is happy with him. I mean, look how seriously he's taking his faith. And yet, what did Paul discover? Verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Paul is saying that all of my efforts, my trying so hard, in the end, it was worthless. It's not that Paul's intense efforts were getting him down the path to Jesus quicker. What he realized is actually they were quickly leading him down the wrong path. And it's easy for us today, though, to look at Paul and say, well, we're not like that. I don't find my religious identity in, in what I do. I'm not trying to make anyone get circumcised or follow Jewish dietary laws. 
because we are used to the language of we are saved in Christ alone, through grace alone. This is common vocabulary for us in a way that wasn't around when Paul was alive. But I would argue that actually this doesn't mean we're any less likely to have that same attitude as Paul. It just means more more likely, more likely to be deceived about it. That we are actually, it is very easy for us to find our religious identity in our religious performance. Even though at the same time we'd be quick to say, no, I know it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jonathan Edwards, he writes that and says that spiritual pride, so boasting in your religious works, finding an identity in your righteousness, is the main way that the devil takes over the hearts of those who are eager to grow in Christ. I mean, think about that for a second. The devil so often doesn't fight necessarily a full frontal assault against you to keep you from growing Christ. He comes up besides you and says, I look, see, you're so eager to grow in Christ. Let me show you a way you can even make it more. And in that, the devil gains a foothold for religious pride, which actually takes us far from Christ. And he says that until spiritual pride is cured, He believes that all other spiritual growth is going to be stunted. It will all be, in one sense, just leading you more quickly down the wrong path because it's keeping you from resting fully on Christ. And this is what makes spiritual pride so dangerous. The spiritually proud person will be active in the church, respected by others, and likely blind to his own prideful condition because he doesn't think he's proud. He looks at his life and compares himself to others and has good reasons for him to think, well, I'm doing a lot better at the Christian life than everybody else. Well, how can you tell if you're spiritually proud, if you're finding your identity in your own righteousness? And often the best way is to look at how we think of others. Jonathan Edwards gives us a number of helpful examples. I'm just going to read a few quotes from him. He says, the spiritually proud person finds fault with other saints for their lack of progress in grace. Well, the humble Christian sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with others' hearts. He also says, spiritually proud people often speak almost everything they see in others in the harshest, most severe language. Commonly, their criticism is directed against not only wicked men, but also towards true children of God and those who are their superiors. He's saying, how does this person speak about others? Maybe how do you just think about others in your own mind? Do you give the harshest criticism to other children of God and your own spiritual leaders because they aren't doing as good as you are? He also says, proud people take great notice of opposition and injuries and are prone to speak often about them with an air of bitterness or contempt. Christian humility, on the other hand, disposes a person to be more like his blessed Lord, who, when reviled, did not open his mouth, but committed himself in silence to him who judges righteously. For the humble Christian, the more clamorous and furious the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be. What an incredible picture. He's saying that For the spiritually proud person, when he's attacked, when someone uh, criticizes him, when someone maybe questions what he's doing, he gets incredibly riled up and goes on the defensive and is contemptuous of those people that would question how much he's doing. Well, the true Christian humility is marked by a a willingness to be silent like Jesus when he was accused. The more furious 
the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be. One of the greatest marks of spiritual pride is found in how you think of others. It's worth noting that spiritual pride can also manifest itself in our theology. You can find your identity and how well you know theology. I was talking to someone who said that R.C. Sproul once said that the devil would ace a theology exam. It's easy for your theological acumen to become a false religious identity. But just because your theology is better than someone else's, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. In fact, you can be resting on your theology instead of resting on Christ. And Paul's point in Philippians 3 is not just that Christ is so great that he is overshadows these things, but these things can actually lead you further from Christ because you are finding your identity in them. You may look like a Christian from the outside, but it's only appearance because your heart is actually far from Christ. The other way that we can find a false religious identity is actually in our own sin. This is maybe a little bit more confusing, but I'm sure every one of us has heard others say, and maybe we've even said it ourselves, well, I just can't believe God would forgive me for this thing. Or I can't forgive myself for what I did. Or, well, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And when we say things like that, we are in danger of creating a false religious identity out of our sin. How so? Because you're focusing more on your sin than on the grace of Christ. You're putting more weight to your failures than to the forgiveness of God. Isaiah 43, 25, uh, God says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. So why is it that God forgives you, particularly when you mess up big and in those areas where you struggle to forgive yourself? Why does God forgive you? Well, not because of how hard you're trying to do better or how much you hate yourself or how you screwed up or how sorry you feel. No, God forgives you because of who he is. If God says that he will not think of your sins again, why should you? Do you think you can actually have a higher standard than God's? You see, your refusal to forgive yourself is actually another form of spiritual pride. You're somehow thinking, well, I've got to, I can't accept God's word. I've got to take my own standard. And it is impossible for you to have a higher standard than God. So why do you keep bringing those sins back? Well, it's often, maybe not even through your own fault, but some of how you were raised, that your own failures have become lodged into how you see yourself. They have become part of your identity. And what's the solution for this? Well, it's actually the same for both type of people, whether you are trying to find your identity and how good you are or trying to find your identity and how much you've screwed up. What both people need to do is what Paul did Going back to Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. In order to have a right religious identity, you need to see Christ as bigger and better 
than these other things. You've got to be convinced in your heart of hearts that sometimes it is actually your efforts to be a better Christian that are actually keeping you from receiving and resting Christ alone. You've got to be compelled that God's grace is bigger than your sins. And you've got to realize that all these other identities that you are trying to to rest your heart on are like garbage when compared to the beauty of being one with Christ. Why is it you're trying to decorate your faith in Christ with garbage? Why are you trying to pin your efforts, your good works, your robust theology, all of these things which compared to the glory of Christ look so dirty and only detract from the beauty of your union with Christ? Everything you do only hides the glory of Christ from shining in you. Jesus is not a stepping stone to something greater. Jesus is your greatest good. There is nothing higher than him. There, he is the capstone of the faith. And you get him through faith alone. And you cannot add anything to him without losing him. And you've got to realize that to know Christ, not just to know about him, but to, to know him, to taste him, to pant for him, to know him in the most intimate of ways, that gives you access to something so much better than anything you could do on your own. You get to become one with the one who is love, and that defines who you are.